Sarah's going to read the scripture for us today, yeah? Okay, reading from Ephesians 2, uh, starting from uh, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that's us, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by, in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who was made who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace, peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I think she deserves a round of applause for that message. You may not, but I do. I just, she's got a great reading voice. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something a bit different. So I'm trying to get kind of with it, you know, so I'm using my computer, which has got my notes on. And I, I can see you're impressed. Yeah, thank you for that. That was sarcastic, I know. <laughs> so, um, I've got my notes here. I have a mix, I have, always have mixed feelings about notes, you know, but, um, let's see how I get on with this. Um, I was a little bit concerned because I was thinking it might suddenly go black in the middle of my sermon, but I think I've handled that one. I've been into the settings and I think I've sorted that one out, I think. I was also concerned that the battery might run out. But apparently it's got four hours and 13 minutes, so that should just be enough for me, shouldn't it, this morning? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. We can't see what you see, but we have faith in that. Okay, thank you, Richard. Thank you for your, thank, thank you for your faith. It's nothing exciting to us, but we'll see how we go. I want you, we're looking for, oh, by the way, Eagles, I didn't realize that you were in today. I'm sorry about that. If I, if I had realized, I would have put on a special performance for you. I'd have told some jokes, done a funny walk or something, but I haven't prepared any of that. I do apologize. hope it's still helpful to you. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what she, did you say you don't want any jokes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I want you, we're looking at foundations, and I want you to spare a thought <clears throat> for a man, 37-year-old guy called Jeff Bush, who in 2013 in Florida was... Um, basically just getting ready to go to bed when suddenly a hole beneath his house just opened up and swallowed um, half of the house and tragically him. You thought it was a joke, wasn't it? It wasn't a joke, okay? It was a story, a true story. 
And the thing is, it's, it's not that uncommon actually in Florida. Because apparently a lot of it is built on limestone and the acid in the rain is eroding the, live, the, the limestone and causing great caverns beneath the surface. And now and again, sinkholes open and uh, buildings get sucked into them. You see, the thing is, we're looking at the whole issue of roots and foundations and, um, you know, something that's going to, in this case, it wasn't particularly how the foundations were built, it was what the foundations were built on. And the principle is this, that can be, on, you know, on the surface of our life, everything is proceeding as normal, our everyday life, we're getting up and eating and spending time with the family, working, going to bed. But underneath the surface, something is happening that is going to have a big impact on what's going on above the surface. We know nothing about them. Therefore, we have to be attentive to what's going on in the roots and foundations. Because this kind of thing can happen. That's just an illustration. This kind of thing can happen to organizations, to businesses, to families, to churches, to individual lives or areas of a life where there's something not right beneath the surface. And suddenly, there's collapse, sometimes with fatal consequences. So we're in this season together of looking as a church, because we're recovering and rebuilding, and we're specifically looking at roots and foundations. And I want to, by the way, encourage you uh, to come along to the Roots and Foundations course we're doing each month. We had an excellent time this Wednesday, just gone with, with Ian Russell, just looking at what it means to experience the love of God and to be transformed by that love and then learn to love one another. It was excellent. Um, so they'll be carrying on. We've got um, Richard and Judith with us in a few weeks' time, looking at the church and its mission. But also on the Sunday mornings, I've been asking those who speak to maybe focus on areas of foundations in the Christian life, both our life together and, and individually. And so Ruth started us off by looking at grace. It all begins with grace, doesn't it? It's not what we do for God, it's what he's already done for us. Not only what he's done for us, but what he continues to do with for us, as we've spoken about this morning. Because there's always more with God's grace. There's always more to experience. Trevor encouraged us, you must learn to trust in times of trouble. Because one promise we, we don't put on the fridge there is, but Jesus said it, in this world you will have trouble. And we have to learn in those times of trouble to, uh, to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. Sarah, you remember, talked to us about knowing who we are, our identity, knowing who we are in Christ. But as part of that, just knowing how God has wired us, knowing who he's made us to be. Because I believe your identity in Christ means you become more fully the person he always created you to be. And also understanding our own identity through understanding our history as a people. And then last week, Dan uh, shared about the importance of us each having our own personal relationship with God. We can't just rely upon being part of the crowd or part of the community or even our, the history of those who have gone before us. We have to have our own personal faith and relationship with God. These are all <clears throat> foundational issues, root issues. So I want to contribute to that this morning, but as I'm doing so, I'm already messing this up, um, as I'm doing so, I want to also share with you and show you a little bit about how we can engage with scripture and allow, hear God's word through scripture, perhaps in ways that we've not always understood, because sometimes we thought about it's maybe just getting a little a verse from scripture that will encourage us and bless us, but actually we have to honor the scriptures as God has given them to us. 
um, in all the stories and all the complexity and all the messiness and, and, and say we can actually learn something from them. I, I believe that, um, I mean, well, I, it's not just what I believe, it's what Jesus said. Hearing God's word is foundational. Jesus said the person who builds their house on rock as opposed to sinking sand or corroding limestone is the person who hears God's word and puts it into practice. And I want us to hear God's word through scripture. Now scripture, as Dan was reminding us last week, is about the story of God. God's big story about how he's changing the world, how he's bringing heaven to earth. At the center of that story is Jesus. But he tells it through multiple kinds of stories. And my, my conviction, my growing conviction is that it's not just the little verses here and there, but it's the whole story and all the stories together as we, as we understand them through Christ, then they can shape our journey together. The story is meant to shape the journey. And if you if you were at or you'd listened to the first of the foundation series, that's what I was touching upon, so I'd encourage you to listen to that. So over the times when I'm preaching over the next few months, in the summer months, I'm going to be looking at the story, or the stories, around what's called the restoration period in Scripture. That's the time in Scripture where the, the Israelites, who had, um, because of, the, of, of not following God, because of disobeying God, God had disciplined them and sent them into exile in Babylon. But then, 70 years later, according to the promise of God, they came back, and they came back to rebuild the temple to rebuild the house of God and to rebuild the city walls. I want to look at the stories around that period of time and use them to help us shape our journey. It's not difficult to see how it relates, the rebuilding, the laying of the foundations, how it relates to the prophetic season that we're in. And it's not difficult to see how um, these stories relate to Jesus and his plan. You see, as I said, the, the, the Bible, the story of God, is all about Jesus and his plan to change the whole world. It was a hidden plan in the Old Testament. There were hints of what it was about, but it was basically hidden. But then Jesus comes and he reveals the plan, sometimes called the mystery of God, to us. And as Sarah has actually mentioned it this morning, it's this. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ and his church are God's secret plan to fill the earth with his glory. To show the world what God looks like. We're part of that plan. And it's easy, therefore, to see how, the, because one of the main pictures in Scripture about the, the church, and we've heard it in the reading this morning, is that we are a temple. We're, we're a whole building which is being joined together, rising to become a holy temple, uh, in which a, it is a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Okay? So it's easy to see how this relates to the plan of God. Note, by the way, in that Scripture, as you look at it, it's about not just a house, it's not just about building, it's about a household. It's about a family. You know, when Jesus in the scriptures is talking about my father's house, that's what he's talking about. Even when he was a little boy, and he said, didn't you realize I'd be in my father's house? He's not just talking about a building. We, we understand that. He's talking about a community, a people built together, knit together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. And we're not even just talking about those amazing times of praise and worship that we have in the presence of God, though they are important. It's important to gather together, to worship together, to pray together, to hear God's word together. 
But it's more than that. It's about the whole life of the community. People living together in love. That's where God dwells. By his spirit. It's easy to see how Jesus relates. Because I'm saying Jesus is the center of the story. How Jesus relates to this whole story about the temple. Because Jesus, of course, as the scripture we've read reminds us, is the foundation and the cornerstone of the temple. But we could also apply that words of the psalm, um, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. We want Jesus to be the one who builds this house. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will, won't prevail against it. The problem is, is we sometimes will try to do his job for him rather than laboring with him. But there's another, there's another thing about Jesus and the house that has struck me as I've been preparing for this. Do you remember that time when Jesus goes into the temple and he sees the traders, the sellers selling all their wares in the, in the court, the outer courts of the temple, basically ripping off the Gentiles, the outsiders. And Jesus is offended so much so that he takes a whip and he literally cracks the whip and sends all the animals rushing and turns over the tables and sends the traders out of the temple. And what did the disciples consider when they saw Jesus doing this? Because this was unusual behavior for Jesus. They said, zeal for the house of the Lord consumes him. Quoting a psalm, zeal, passion for God's house consumes him. Jesus wanted his house, his father's house, to be built right and to be used right. This was, the outer courts were not meant to be the place where the Gentiles, that is the outsiders, were exploited. It was to be the place where they were exposed to the presence and the goodness and the loving kindness of God. Not ripped off, but drawn near to God. And zeal for his house consumes him. And I pray, you know, folks, that God would give to us a like passion and a like zeal for the dwelling place of God. You see, it's always been God's purpose. This is absolutely central to his purpose, is to have a dwelling place on earth. You can trace it through the story of the Bible, whether you're looking at the garden or the tabernacle for which read Big Tent in the wilderness, or the temple that Solomon built, or, or, or the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah, or Jesus coming and dwelling among us, according to John 1, literally tabernacling amongst us. Or now in the scripture Sarah read to us, Ephesians 2, we're being built together as a temple to the Lord. It's all, and then by the time you get to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, when everything's fulfilled as God purposed, it says this, now the dwelling of God is with people. It's always been God's purpose to have a dwelling place on the earth to fulfill the covenant promise. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell among them. And I pray that as God's people, we would have a passion for his dwelling place, for his house. I pray that we would echo the psalmist in Psalm 84, verses 1 to 2, when he says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. 
just to be in the house of God, in the presence of God with his people. But also, it's not just about what we enjoy. But the house of God was always meant to be the hope for the nations. That's why Jesus got so worked up about the fact that the nations, the Gentiles, the outsiders, were being exploited in the temple. It was always meant to be a hope for them. It was never about exclusion, it was about inclusion. You know, the house of God, one of the characteristics of the house of God must be a, a radical hospitality that welcomes the other, that welcomes the stranger. That's why it says in that reading, no longer strangers, no longer foreigners, but built into the house. Because you see, one of the towering prophetic pictures of the Old Testament was that delivered by Isaiah in the second chapter of his book, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, I think it is. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The house of God is the hope of the nations. That they would come to the house of God and experience and encounter God and learn from God. Last week, Dan referred to Bethel, Jacob at Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And, and, and Jacob says these words, this is, this is surely the house of God, the gate of heaven. What was he saying is when people come into the house of God, into the church, they should feel that they're on the very threshold of heaven. Experiencing the presence of God. And so we must be passionate and zealous for God's house. I pray that we're like Ezra and Nehemiah. Like Nehemiah, for example, when he heard, and it was the city walls, but it's all part and part of the same thing, were fallen down. Or, or Ezra, when he realized what was going wrong in God's house, it needed rebuilding. They fasted and they prayed. They tore their clothes, which was typical Middle Eastern ways of showing their, uh, their um, grief of what is happening to God's house. So when we're talking, folks, about rebuilding and refounding this particular part of the house of God that we're a part of, we need to be passionate about it. We need to long to see God's house built as God wants. So when I was thinking about the how the stories of God and the story of God shape our journey, and I'm looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, we just need to be careful how we do it. Because a lot of people can just like treat Scripture like it's a kind of, I don't know, a moral fable from which you can just extract simple principles. In fact, many people have used Ezra and Nehemiah as a, like a little manual for leadership. I've got at least one book on my bookcase on Nehemiah, Lessons in Leadership. And um, it's all about how you kind of mobilize a people to achieve a, an aim about, you know, um, building a house or having a revival or what have you. And of course, there are things that are helpful in these books like that. So, for example, leadership is vitally important. And the whole book, and by the way, it was one book when it was first written. It's two books in our Bibles, but it was one book when it was first written. And it's, it, it's organized around the three leaders, Zerubbabel at first, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. So how we 
understand leadership, how we practice it, how we respond to it, is really important. And there are things to learn there, but we have to be careful. Because there are many things in Ezra and Nehemiah, you think, um, are we supposed to follow that example? Are we Let me give you an example. And by the way, if you've never been on the Bible Project, which is a great website, which is an overview of all the books of the Bible as well as many other things. If you've never been on that, I want to encourage you to go on it. And by way of just preparing yourself for any words that I, any message that I bring on Ezra and Nehemiah, have a look at the one on Ezra and Nehemiah. It's very good. It gives you a little eight-minute overview of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it draws out the fact that suddenly things seem to go well and then they suddenly go badly. There's a kind of anticlimax all the way along. And one of the things that happens is these leaders are often excluding certain peoples from being part of the building. And it doesn't always sit well. Now, sometimes it does. Sometimes there is a right kind of exclusion. So Paul, for example, he says, you need to expel the person who's being, who's being sexually immoral from the church family. He's sleeping with his mother, his stepmother, whatever. He says, you need to... Because if you are building something and you have certain values, and those values are being seriously violated... You have to protect those values. And so there does come a point when there is the exclusion. But always, always, as with the case of the immoral brother in Corinth in the New Testament, it's always to see them restored and included. But there's other kinds of exclusion in Ezra and Nehemiah where you think, is that right? For example, they discover that the people of the time have been intermarrying with pagans. And that seems to go against God's law. And so what they decide, the way to deal with that, says Ezra, is you must put away your wife and your children. You must send them away. Hmm. That didn't quite sit well. Is that just me being modern and Western? I don't know. Because I think, well, if foreign wives was good enough for Moses, surely it's good enough for them. Because Moses married a Midianite. And then um, he gets... You know, the Rahab is kind of trumpeted in the scripture as this great example of faith. She was a prostitute, a foreign prostitute. A Moabite, Ruth, gets into the line of David. You see, God doesn't seem quite as uptight about inclusion exclusion as Ezra did. And when you get to Jesus, well, goodness, he's including everybody who's meant to be excluded, who's meant to be an outsider. A Roman centurion, a Syrophoenician woman, a Samaritan woman at the well who's kind of got five husbands. You know. He's always including those who have been excluded and the ones who thought they were included, the Pharisees, if anyone's going to be excluded. So he challenged, so you always have to read the scripture aware, always looking at it through what Jesus has done and what Jesus says. Okay? Again, if you listen to the thing on Christ and scripture in the Roots and Foundation series, that will help you to understand that. And here's another thing. Nehemiah. I'm saying you can learn lessons in leadership from Nehemiah, and you can. Some lessons, but be careful. Because by the end of it, you see, they've done this great work of trying to rebuild the house of God and reestablish the Lord among God's people, which was needed to help them to be a good people and so on, and get everything going. There's a revival, there's a renewal going on. But by the end of Nehemiah, which is the end of the books, Nehemiah is really frustrated because they're not doing what they're meant to be doing. They're not looking after the temple properly after it's been rebuilt. They're not, um, they're not, they're working on the Sabbath and stuff. They're disobeying God's law. And his walls, guess what they're doing? They're putting little 
trading places up against the walls and again exploiting the people on the outside. Guess what Nehemiah does? He goes around giving them a good slap and pulling their hair out. Now, I can understand getting to a point in leadership where you're pulling your own hair out, but going around other people slapping them and pulling their hair out, I just want to let you know, by the way, that that's not going to be in our curriculum for leadership development. You know, if all else fails, just go around and give them a good slap. That's not, uh, we don't think that's a lesson we should learn from Nehemiah. You see, scripture, we must be honest about what scripture is. And not try to make it something it isn't into a moral fable. Do you know, one thing I love about scripture, the stories of God are not fairy stories. They're not fairy stories. Be careful that the stories that you tell yourself are not fairy stories. Because the problem with fairy stories, they always do have a victim. It's normally a maiden in distress. They have a, a villain. And they have a hero or rescuer who comes and rescues the victim from the villain. That's the kind of fairy tales that we were brought up on. And it just doesn't do justice to what humanity is really like. And so I love scripture that it's honest. The villains have, the seeming villains have really redeeming features. And the heroes, like David, for example, can behave very, very badly at times. Scripture is much more real, much more authentic, much more messy, much more offensive, actually, at times. And we have to deal with that. I love it because the Bible is really honest about our flaws and our failures, as well as our potential. The Bible is honest about the mess, as well as the mystery of life. It's honest about the glory and the shame. And you see, the whole point of this story of Ezra and Nehemiah is really, yes, we can learn stuff about building and so on. Yes, we can. But really, at the end of it, when it's all gone wrong, like happens again and again throughout the Old Testament, is there to illustrate a fundamental important point that the story of the Bible is making. You can't achieve this without having a changed heart. You can't change anything. You can't build God's house. You can't advance God's kingdom unless something changes in the heart first. This is the, my contribution to the theme of foundations this morning. You see, they were living in the days before the period of the new covenant. They were living in the old covenant. A new covenant. Part of the old new covenant was that we would receive a new heart. A heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. A heart that responded to God, in other words. And even for us who are living in the days of the new covenant, and we've got a new heart, We still have to guard our heart. And we still have to make sure we maintain a healthy heart. You see, building God's house has to begin in the heart. And um, Paul, if you can help me, I've got a few scriptures here. I want you, it's important that you see these, if you don't mind. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 22. And I think it's verse 7. For some reason, I've not got it down here. I think it's verse 7. When David first wanted to build a temple, in fact, it wasn't him who built it. In the end, it was his son Solomon. But he had, it says this, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house. The building of the house began in the heart. And so, a little bit further down in verse 19 of the same chapter, he gets all the leaders of Israel together and he says this to them, Now, 
Devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God. Begin to build the sanctuary of the Lord God so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the sacred articles belonging to him, whatever, to God in the temple that will be built for the name of the Lord. Go back, please, for me. Uh, That's it. Devote your heart and soul. Begin to build the sanctuary or the temple or the house of God. If they were to build the house of God, they had to devote their heart and soul to it. Now all those years later, decades later, when centuries later, when they had numerous kings and queens and the, and the, well kings, and it divided into uh, two uh, parts, Israel and Judah, and then they'd all been carried off into exile for 70 years in Babylon, and then they returned. It says this in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. The house begins in the heart. I often, when the person on tech comes to see me and says, what title do you want for your message? I can think, I think to myself, what have I been talking about? Um, and then I ask somebody, and when they can't tell me, that worries me. But... Um, I never know quite what name to put in. It's usually the wrong name that I choose. But this one I'm clear on. I want to call it a heart for God's house. Yes. A heart for God's house. Both in terms of our passion for his, his house, his dwelling place. But also in terms of that's where it begins. You see, the ultimate root issue is always the issue of the heart. What's going on in our heart? At the foundation of our lives are the things that we decide in our heart. For us folks on our journey, remember the story shapes the journey. On our journey, we can't build God's house together. Oh, sorry, if we are going to build God's house together, we have to engage with it from the heart. You see, the thing about it coming from the heart is the heart can never be compelled. You can never force a person to do something in their heart. You can't. You may be able to force their outward behavior. It's not a good idea. Don't pull hair. Right? But you can't control what's going on in their heart. You cannot control, you cannot compel the heart. We have to make our own choices from the heart. And we have to look after the health of the heart. You know what? I was, um, in preparation for this, I looked up symptoms of an unhealthy heart, or symptoms that you might be about to have a heart attack, or that at least you've got heart trouble. Some of the symptoms are, it's obvious ones, like pains in the chest. They go into the arms, and then you get sweaty, you might feel nauseous. Your ankles, you know, over a period of time, your ankles could swell. And of course, what happens when you're looking at these things, oh gosh, I do feel a bit sweaty, actually. I do. Uh, a bit nauseous, oh my goodness. Some of you now are saying, does it look like my ankles are swelling? (laughs) But there are symptoms of a bad heart. And um, it's the same spiritually. We have to attend to what's going on in our heart. And we have to be honest with ourselves. What's going on inside of us? This is the root. This is the foundation. Do we have a heart of integrity? Are we, as much as possible, because there's always a gap for all of us, but is our Are we on the outside what we truly are on the inside? Are we pure in heart? Purity, by the way, doesn't mean being without any 
flaws or failings, but being wholly devoted to the Lord? Are we open-hearted? Are we, or have we hardened our heart? Is there a unity of heart and, dis- and, and mind? Are we making quality decisions from the heart rather than kind of reluctantly and kind of just going along with stuff? You see, leaders can do some things. We can seek to inspire you with a painting a picture of the house of God. But we, each of us, still have to make a decision from the heart. You can have the greatest worship leaders. But unless we decide in our heart, we're going to worship God. We're going to fully engage with this. It won't work. That's just one example. There are many other things. We have to make decisions from the heart. I've always loved this verse in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. It's actually about giving, financial giving. But we can apply in other ways as well. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I want to suggest that we apply that not only to financial giving, but to everything that we give. Of our time, of our service, of our, our very selves, that we give what we have decided in the heart to give. Not reluctantly or un, under compulsion. And I said that leaders can't make, do that for you and shouldn't try. You can't control What's going on in a person's heart? And you should never try. What a leader can do, though, as well as inspire, is to insist that we don't pretend. Is to insist that we're honest about what's going on in our heart. And if, for example, um, we're not engaging because, I mean, there can be practical reasons, by the way, but when we're engaging because there's something going on in the heart, there's no judgment. We just have a honest and healthy conversation. What's going on in your heart? Because we want everybody to be fully engaged from the heart. I looked at, I haven't got time to go into now, but I looked at some of the scriptures in the New Testament which uses the phrase from the heart. We serve from the heart. We give from the heart. We give thanks from the heart. And I love this one in 1 Peter 1.22. It's always been a favorite of mine. Now that you've purified yourself through obedience to the truth, love one another deeply from the heart. And so, as we're attending to roots and foundations, let's be honest about what's going on in our heart. If we need to have an honest and healthy conversation, let's do it. If we need help, let's seek it. But let's be honest about what's going on in our heart because the building of God's house begins in the heart. When Mark was with us some time ago, Mark Lawrence, he said, he referred to a number of us who referred to me, he said, the thing about Trevor is like a dad who will always say, will not, not shrink back from saying the difficult thing is to hear because he's passionate about this house and this family. Now, I know I'm not the only one who's passionate about it, but I am one who is passionate about it. And therefore, I will, as a leader, amongst other leaders, be honest with you. Let's be honest about what's going on in the heart because you cannot afford to paint over cracks, to just build on something where there's a big gap underneath and it's just going to fall into it eventually i will always say i make you this promise it might not be a promise you want to hear but it's be a promise that i will always see to say let's be honest about what's going on with the heart because as i said the building of god's house begins in the heart i'd like us because in god's house there's a table 
It's a table, by the way, which all those who were outsiders are now invited to come and partake in. The table speaks of his hospitality. By the way, in view of the scriptures that have, the, the words that have come rather this morning, we're given the bread and the wine as an old sacrament. It's people have been doing it for 2,000 years. But you can experience it fresh and new this morning. You can experience God's grace afresh to you this morning as you come. And all I'm going to do is ask you, before you come to the table, this is not to exclude you, not at all, everybody's included, but to ask you before you come, Paul encourages and exhorts God's people in Corinth to examine their hearts before they come. And if, it worked, hey, by the way, it worked. If you, if you have something in your heart you need to sort out, maybe it's between you and God, maybe it's between you and somebody else, I don't know. But either you sort it out before you take bread and wine or you resolve in your heart that I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to, maybe there's things you're holding back from. You think, no, I'm going to make a quality decision from the heart today. And I want you to encourage you to, to do that. Just to do that little bit of heart, well, I don't know what you call it, heart attentiveness before you come and take the bread and the wine. I'm going to ask Marcus if he'd come with the worship team and just lead us in worship as we, as we do that. I'm not saying this has to just be a you and God thing today. I know that was how we did it last week. But feel free to share with one another, and we're, go, we're going to finish on this. But um, before you come, just make sure you do your own heart work with God before coming to the table. Amen.